Good afternoon. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome. I'm Maureen Conway. I'm the Executive Director of the Economic Opportunities Program here at the Aspen Institute, and I direct our Workforce Strategies Initiative. And we are so delighted to have you all with us here in the first of our series. This is the first of a series of discussions on reinventing low-wage work, ideas that can work for employees, employers, and the economy. Um, and I just, I just wanted to say that um, I'm not going to say actually too many things because we have so many great speakers here. And I wanted to point out to you that you have their bios uh, just behind the information. And uh, because in, in the interest of time, we won't be reading them all to you. But they're really a terrific group. I'm delighted that they've all joined us today. And I want to thank the um, Charles Stewart Mott and the Ford Foundation for their support of this, um, this series, and I hope you'll join us for subsequent ones as well. But today we're going to be talking about restaurant workers, and I'm particularly honored to introduce Helen Newborn of the Ford Foundation, who will be our, our first speaker. Um, Helen has, uh, is the Director of Quality Employment at the Ford Foundation, very aptly titled for today's discussion. And uh, she's just been dedicated to issues affecting low-wage work throughout her career. Um, and so I'm really honored that she's here with us today to, to kick off this series, and I will introduce Helen. Thank you. So thank you, Maureen. I'm really delighted to be here and happy to be at the first session of what I hope will be a number of interesting discussions around low-wage work. Um, we all know that access to good jobs and training is critical in America's economy, and, and it stands at the center of our collective vision of opportunity. But as the job market has shifted dramatically in the United States over the last three decades, there are now millions of workers trapped in low-wage jobs with limited resources to support a family or to try to climb the economic ladder. I think we'd all agree that people who work hard shouldn't be poor, and yet today, one in four working families is dependent on employment that offers poor job security, low wages, limited benefits, and very little opportunity to advance. I'm going to further assume some consensus that, that the widely shared economic prosperity we seek not only improves the lives of low wage workers and their communities, but that it's also good for business and for the stability and the growth of the economy. But the data tells us that the most basic um, level of economic security is out of reach of whole segments of our society. For the most part, our national conversation has focused on skills training as a way to help unemployed and underemployed workers move up the ladder. And that's important. Yet many of the occupations that will add the most jobs in the ne next deca decade are low-wage jobs, including things like retail sales workers, uh, home health care aides, and um, restaurant workers and food preparation workers. So we know that we could have better job quality in these jobs and that we need to address that because it just has huge ramifications for this very large population of workers, many of whom will stay in these jobs for most of their lifetimes. So because quality employment is so critical to the Ford Foundation's social justice agenda, we are investing in a number of strategies to address these issues. First, in workforce, we're working with stakeholders, with government entities, with employers, with community colleges, job trainers, and also with the organized labor to help make the system more effective and responsive to the needs of low-wage workers. 
We're also supporting innovations that help increase the effectiveness and ability of credentialing and training programs to better educate low-wage workers. And we're helping to increase the capacity of worker centers, which are largely led by immigrant workers, to develop their own training initiatives, as well as to help place their members in established training providers like community colleges that have been supportive. And so we're looking at the innovative models that will come out of that work. Ford also supports two additional strategies to help low-wage workers move towards self-sufficiency. First, to improve the quality of jobs overall, we're focusing on expanding access to unemployment insurance. Barely half the population now has access to unemployment insurance. And also to ensure that more jobs pay family-supporting wages and that workers have access to paid sick days and paid family leave on those jobs. We know that these policies reduce turnover and stabilize workers, and we also think that they help the workers become more productive and indeed become more loyal employees when, the pol when these policies exist at the workplace. Also, to increase the stability of workers who are living now with low wages, we're working with states and the federal government to improve the way states deliver important government benefits to low-wage workers, things like food stamps or health care or child care. We're currently supporting a demonstration in eight states who've applied for funds to help make their overwhelmed state systems more effective and more efficient by making the benefit application process that they've got simpler, more flexible, and more attuned to the needs of the low-wage workers who need these benefits. We plan to use the results of these state experiments to encourage all states to become more effective in the way that they deliver benefits to working families. And we're also delivering, excuse me, expanding the delivery of benefits to some new settings, such as um, community colleges or uh, Head Start centers, housing projects, and even um, large nonprofit employers, because that's where the workers are. So we're trying to look at where workers are and bring the benefits delivery system to them. We're pleased to be a part of these conversations that we hope will not only bring more attention to the issues and the challenges of low-wage work, but also provide an opportunity for new and practical ideas to be highlighted that can address this complex challenge. We need to make sure the issue of low-wage work doesn't escape our attention. We know we must deal not only with the skills gap, but the wage gap if we're going to build a strong economy and provide access to economic opportunity for all Americans. And so now I'd like to introduce Congresswoman Donna Edwards. She's been a member of the House of Representatives since 2008, uh, representing Maryland's 4th Congressional District. Before entering Congress, she was the executive director of the ARCA Foundation, where she worked on securing living wages and promoting labor and human rights nationally and internationally. And before that, she founded the National Network to End Domestic Violence, which led efforts to pass the Violence Against Women Act of 1994 which I just said I was also involved in at the Now Legal Defense Fund at the time. And currently, she's heading an effort to pass the Wages Act, which would raise the tip minimum wage, which has been frozen for more than two decades. So please welcome Congresswoman Edwards.
Good afternoon, and thank you very much, Helen, for that introduction. Always, when we're ever in a, a room, it's always a walk back in, in time with uh, those of us who've worked on a, a variety of different uh, issues but remain committed to uh, advancing the opportunities for people who are co who've come from some of the most vulnerable communities. And so I always appreciate your work, Helen. And um, because I came out of philanthropy into politics, I, you know, have a need always to say to those who are in the philanthropic community, the Ford Foundation, uh, to the Charles Stewart Mott uh, Foundation, um, and the folks at the Aspen Institute, how important and valuable it is to me as a policymaker today, and I knew it before I was in Congress, um, that the philanthropic community really advances uh, important issues of public policy uh, for us to be concerned about. And so I really appreciate that we're all gathered here uh, today. Um, I want to share with you actually a, a little bit of a story. It's not a long one, um, but it's probably one that each of us can repeat every, you know, weekend or other when we have dispo disposable income and we can afford to go out to a restaurant. And my story was actually just this past weekend. Um, and uh, as I do often, and especially since I introduced um, House Resolution 631, the wages bill that would increase the tipped uh, minimum wage that, as Helen has described, hasn't been increased in, uh, in two decades. I talked to the uh, young server who was serving my, my table. I asked him about his wages. He, like uh, many others, works for below the regular uh, minimum wage. He's fully dependent. Um, uh, serving tables uh, isn't just something that he does as a sideline. It is his job, um, like the other servers who were in that restaurant. Um, and he's not an exception. There are millions who work across this country uh, for whom their principal income is uh, the service that they give in uh, places like uh, the restaurants that we, that we frequent. Uh, he has a young family that he is uh, supporting, along with his wife, who is also a server at a restaurant. And collectively, the two of them make uh, sub the regular minimum wage. They make a tipped wage, and they depend on those of us who eat at those establishments um, to make sure that their tips add up to a minimum wage, add up to a living, living wage, so that they can take care of their uh, their children. And so when I talked to this young man further and I looked out at the restaurant and apart from uh, two adults who were sitting at a table who have okay decent jobs and who would be able to leave a, a generous tip, I looked around the restaurant and the other tables that uh, that he was serving were tables of a whole bunch of young people, high school students who had just stopped in for lunch. Now when I was waiting tables I always knew that that was a really bad sign uh, <laughs> because they would take a lot of time at the table and you would not be able to turn over a table. And at the end of that cycle, they would, you would be lucky if you were left a tip. And so that would mean that in the course of the time that we sat at that restaurant, maybe it was a half an hour or maybe it was an, an hour, that the likelihood that this young man would actually make up a wage that would allow him to take care of himself and her, his family was highly unlikely. His story and his experience is just like all uh, stories across, uh, across this country. Uh, I also asked him uh, at the end of the cycle if I left him a tip on his credit card whether he would get that money at the end of the day. And he shared with me that he would likely get it at the end of his pay period, but not at the end of the day. That someplace or other, the tips that he made would be held someplace, 
and then eventually maybe they would make their way onto his uh, paycheck. I asked him about what that would mean for him and he said, well, you know, we're always juggling. And so he told me, uh, told me his story. He probably told me his story, I don't know, at great jeopardy to him, uh, to himself if that were, uh, if that were shared. Um, but I share that with you because I think um, that it underscores why it is that many of us believe that it's important to raise the wages and the standard of living for so many people across this country who are working for tipped wages. And the fact that most people who sit at those tables every day were not bad people, many of us don't even know that there's a difference between the minimum wage that is made by the person who um, who gives your food service and, and allows you to have a great time on a Friday or Saturday night and the wage that is made by others who even work for minimum wage. And the most that we know is that even if we were to work for minimum wage, uh, that you can add up all the minimum wage work that you want, um, you can come to a 40-hour work week, and you will still not make it to the poverty level. And yet that's the experience of so many across this country. Many of those folks are women. Um, and many are women of color. And so if you add these factors together, what we know is that without raising the tip minimum wage, despite the fact that, as Helen described, we want people going into skilled uh, training. We want to create more uh, opportunities for skilled work, more opportunities for people to, uh, to go to college and expand their, uh, their chances of making a uh, much more decent living and taking care of their families. But the reality is that because of the kind of economy that we have, that many people will be working in a service sector um, in which they deserve uh, to make a decent wage as well. And so um, the, I want to tell you a little bit about, uh, about H.R. 631, the Wages Act. It would raise the minimum wage of tipped employees from the current level of $2.13 an hour to $3.75 an hour. And we think, my goodness, only $3.75 an hour. That would be the first month, first three months after enactment. And then it would raise the minimum wage of tipped employees to $5 an hour one year after an enactment and then move to 70% of the regular minimum wage uh, thereafter. Um, currently, there are only a few co-sponsors of this bill, 27 co-sponsors. But I, I think that we're in a moment in time where we're trying to think about ways that we have to recreate our economy so that it w works in many different sectors. And the fact is that if it doesn't work in this sector of people who provide uh, services, then the economy will not work. Uh, for all of us. And so I just want to uh, thank you all very much for having the opportunity to be with you today. And I'm looking forward um, to hearing uh, from the panel, and hopefully that will take place before we get called uh, for votes. But I'm looking forward to it because part of what I see are people who are, are advocates, people who have information, people who run, uh, run restaurants, who know that we have the capacity to do this that won't um, eat into the profit margins of restaurants. It will not result in the doomsday of uh, restaurants and others in the industry uh, closing. It will not, and in fact, in some states that have a higher minimum wage, like California, and you will hear that, uh, the restaurant industry is booming. And so we know that what's good for America, what's good for Americans, what's good for our low-wage workforce is to make sure that they can take care of themselves and their children and commit uh, the money that they make to paying taxes and 
putting into the, into the economy. But they certainly can't do that when they run the risk of making a wage that doesn't allow them to meet their needs, drawing on social services and other resources, not because they want to, but because they have to in order to make ends meet. And again, this is not just about college students who are trying to, um, you know, get some uh, extra money like I did to go to Spain or, you know, travel abroad. Uh, this is about people who are supporting their families on what many of us in this room would not be able to do even for a week. And so thank you very much and thank you for the opportunity to be with you. Thank you so much for your leadership on this issue. We really appreciate your being here with us today. Um, it's my pleasure now to introduce uh, Peter Edelman, who will be moderating our terrific panel of speakers. As I mentioned, you have bios, and uh, uh, Peter has a long and distinguished career in uh, working on issues affecting uh, poor populations in the U.S. And I also want to mention that he will have a, a book coming out, and we left flyers on the materials table. It's called So Rich, So Poor, Why It's So Hard to End Poverty in America. Um, so I, I ran the risk of having somebody who's an expert be the moderator. I'm sure he'll take his <laughs> moderator privilege from time to time. But it's my pleasure right now to turn it over to Peter Edelman. Thank you. Well, thank you, Maureen. Uh, I'm delighted to be here and, and very happy to, uh, to be a moderator and, and uh, I, I know this terrific panel will say everything I would have said and about 20 times more, so I'm going to learn a lot. Um, uh, before I introduce the panel, just a few uh, words to put it in context, uh, uh, building uh, particularly on what Helen said. Uh, and I hesitate because I think everybody in this room knows what I'm going to say, but, but uh, we, we really need to understand and get our country to understand that the question of low-wage work is very deeply embedded in our economy and, and that uh, we've, this is a, a problem that's been getting worse and worse for really about 40 years uh, with deindustrialization and globalization. Uh, the changes in, in, in the workforce, and so we just have a flood of low-wage work. We're going to talk about restaurants uh, primarily today, but uh, I, I just don't think we've got it into our national discourse about how huge a problem this uh, is. There's been a stagnation for really the whole lower half. Uh, this is not just a poverty question. It's not even a just above poverty question. Uh, the total real wage uh, growth uh, in this country, I see Larry Michelle. Uh, sitting out there, and, and uh, so thank you, uh, is under 7% for the last 40 years. For the, that, that's a total of under 7% for over a 40-year period. It's just astonishingly low. Uh, and the median wage, uh, just to fit with what Helen said, is $34,000 now uh, in the country. Half the jobs in the country pay less than that. Uh, and a quarter uh, under the poverty line for a family of four. And there was growth, except it all stuck at the top. And again, we know that, but it just needs to be said more. Uh, and so we've had a politics in which uh, uh, the big corporations and the wealthy uh, individuals have protected themselves politically. 
Uh, and there are a bunch of things that have happened that, uh, to say them fully, would, would be, take a long time, but what's happened to unions, uh, the consequences of globalization, uh, the stagnation of the minimum wage, not just TIPS, but in, in general, uh, the ch changes uh, in the labor force, the trade policy, immigration policy, all of that. And we're finally, we are finally waking up, I think we all hope, uh, thanks to, uh, to Occupy, uh, which uh, has gotten the idea of 99% and the 1% uh, into the public consciousness uh, in a way that it has not been. Um, but we've got to pick up on that. Uh, everybody who has any political saliency needs to pick up on that and, and turn it into to a politics. And it's not just 1% and 99%, it's the whole 99%, all the way down to the bottom. Sometimes uh, I worry that, uh, that that's not the point for some people. So we need a politics about all of that. Okay, that's all I have to say. Um, I'm out of here. Uh, <laughs> the uh, wonderful panel, which, which makes me very uh, eager to, to be quiet and listen, uh, Saru uh, Jayaraman uh, is the executive director of the Restaurant Opportunities uh, Center United. And uh, read that bio. It's very, very impressive. Uh, true of all, all three uh, of, of our panelists, John Schmidt, senior economist at the Center for Economic and Policy uh, Research, uh, and uh, very, very much a, a uh, uh, scholar and expert on all of these issues, and Andy Shalal, who I think uh, all of you know, but, but is our favorite Washington socially conscious restaurateur and bookseller. Uh, so it's, this is great to, to have uh, these three people in particular to talk about this subject. So uh, let's get started. Uh, John, uh, start us out with, with, as you do this from a kind of an analytical uh, point of view, uh, observer as well, what you see is some of the problems and challenges that low-wage workers uh, face and, and the larger frame of the impact that th this huge issue has on the economy. Well, Peter, you started uh, by making the comment that low-wage work is deeply embedded in our society, and I think you know, we have some intuitive understanding of that, but I think it's really helpful to think about the orders of magnitude that we're talking about. So, you know, there's an international definition for what low-wage work is, and by that definition, which we can talk about later if you want, uh, about 25% of the U.S. workforce is in low-wage jobs. We are by far uh, the leading, world's leading rich democracy with approximately a, that, a high standard of living uh, in, that, in that regard. Uh, the rest of the world does much better in terms of having much lower shares of low-wage work. But I think that low wages are only like the, the, really the first challenge that uh, low-wage workers face. Uh, if you uh, look at a whole host of other indicators, being a low-wage worker is a very tough job. Uh, almost 40% of low-wage work uh, workers have no health insurance from any source, not just that they don't have it through their employer. They don't have it through their spouse's employer. They don't have it through Medicaid. Um, uh, they don't have a private insurance uh, policy that they buy on their own. Um, something uh, close to 70% of low-wage workers have no paid sick days. Um, uh, less than half have access to paid vacation time. Uh, almost all low-wage workers uh, who have children struggle with having good access to affordable quality uh, health care, uh, excuse me, child care. 
Um, the challenges uh, also go into very specific things like uh, questions around flexibility uh, and predictability of schedules, which are enormous things, uh, enormous concerns, for example, in the restaurant business. Uh, so it's not just that low-wage workers have low wages, it's that they face l uh, the world with low wages and a lack of access to the kinds of basic uh, labor standards, kind of uh, benefits that most of the rest of us take for granted. That puts enormous uh, costs onto those workers themselves, onto their families, onto their communities. Um, and it creates a development model uh, th that Helen was talking about that's sort of you know, not built around getting money to the middle and the bottom and using that as the basis for future growth. It creates the kind of circumstances where people go into debt in order to finance a standard of living that, that is socially acceptable. So I think in the long run, it's really problematic. And FDR said if, if uh, people make money, then they spend it. Yeah. Good, good for the economy. Um, Saro, you're, you're looking at these same problems. Uh, you've been working at this as an organizer for, what, 20 years now. Um, how do you see it from your uh, perspective, the challenges and, and the problems that workers in the restaurant industry in particular face? And, and uh, tell us a little bit about what, what the organization does, your organization does as well. Sure. Um, and, but I first want to thank the Aspen Institute and Mott and Ford for focusing on our industry, um, which right now is one of the largest and fastest growing sectors of the U.S. economy. So um, it's neck and neck with retail as the largest private sector employer in the country with a little over 10 million workers nationwide. Um, the National Restaurant Association just put out their 2012 projections. They're estimating record high revenue this year of $630 billion in revenue. And they estimate by the end of 2012 that one in 10 Americans will be working in restaurants. So they're projecting record high profits. There's tremendous growth. This is one sector of the economy that did not suffer the way other sectors suffered during the last couple of years economic crisis because people continued to eat out and in particular fast food and liquor sales skyrocketed over the last couple of years. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Um, so the industry is doing actually great. Um, the problem is that the vast majority of workers within it are not. And I do want to say because I know a lot of folks in this room focus on workforce development issues um, and have kind of largely kind of looked away from the restaurant industry, seeing it as a low-wage sector, a piece that a lot of people don't know is that there actually are livable wage jobs in this industry. 20% of the jobs, according to our 10 years of research, have shown 20% of the jobs are actually livable wage jobs. So we're talking about uh, fine dining restaurants, largely wait staff and bartending positions, management positions in fine dining restaurants, where waiters and bartenders in a city like Washington, D.C. or New York can earn between fifty and one hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. Those jobs are not held largely by women, workers of color, or immigrants. Um, they're held largely by white men. And the issue, though, is that there actually is no formalized career path in this industry. So it's not like you could actually. There's a myth that you could start as a dishwasher and one day own your own restaurant. Um, but we've really had to take it upon ourselves as an organization to build a career path in this industry. And I want to say that given that there are livable wage jobs, given that there's tremendous revenue, and given that this is one of the largest industries, it's just one that I'm sorry that people in this room cannot continue to ignore. We cannot ignore or overlook this sector as one that we don't focus on for training or workforce opportunities because there's tremendous potential and frankly it's where most workers are going to work. 
Um, if one in ten Americans are going there, we see it in our work, people being laid off from a lot of different other sectors and coming into the restaurant industry, sometimes out of necessity, but a lot of times because people take great pride in cooking and serving and in hospitality. And it should be work that's valued with real wages. So there are some livable wage jobs in the industry. It is true that the majority, 80% of the jobs are very low wages. In fact, uh, every year, restaurant industry meet, makes the record of being, uh, having seven of the 11 lowest paid occupations, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, in the country. And the two absolute lowest paid occupations last year were in restaurants. That's the lowest, lower than farm workers, lower than domestic workers, lower than every other occupational category. Restaurant workers make it to the bottom, even though the, the, the industry is, doing, is, is among the best, <laughs> is doing the best in terms of revenue. This is largely due to thanks so much, Congresswoman Edwards, for being such a staunch advocate on the issue of the tip minimum wage, which has been at $2.13 at the federal level for the last 21 years. And what that means for our members is that many of them who work in those low-wage jobs, not fine dining restaurants, not the highest paid wait staff and bartending positions in the, the snazziest restaurants, and that's the majority of America, and that's largely women, in fact, 66% of tipped workers and 71% of servers in America are women. Um, you know, they're, they're many of them are homeless. Many of them move in and out of homelessness. Many of them, uh, you know, cannot afford to pay the rent. Servers access food stamps at almost double the rate of the regular workforce in America. And they have three times the poverty rate of the American workforce. Right, so that means that the people that cook, prepare, and serve our food cannot afford to eat themselves. Right? And so here you have an industry with tremendous potential, right? tremendous potential for providing livable wage jobs, tremendous potential for people to move up a ladder in, in a real sense and not being able to do so. And this is largely due to what we call occupational segregation, racial segregation, a lack of occupational mobility. It results in a $4 wage gap between white workers and workers of color in this industry um, and, and a host of other problems. As John mentioned, 90%, much worse in the restaurant industry than the, the, uh, than the overall economy, 90% of workers in our industry do not have paid sick days or access to health care, which means that two-thirds of the 5,000 surveys we've uh, we've conducted with workers over the last 10 years, report cooking, preparing, and serving food while sick, which is absolutely disgusting for those of us that eat out on a regular basis. Um, so just a minute about RAW, because I know I'm talking a lot. <laughs> um, we started the organization just after 9-11 with workers from Windows on the World Tower 1 of the World Trade Center. 73 workers died that day, and about 300 lost their jobs. Um, there was a union at the top of that restaurant, a very tiny union that represents less than 0.01% of workers in this, in this industry. So less than 0.01% of restaurant workers nationwide are unionized. Asked me and one of the lead workers from Windows, I'm a professor, an attorney, and an organizer, if we could start an organization um, that would initially provide support to the workers who had lost their jobs and over the long run begin to think about how to change this industry. So what started from 9-11 has grown into a national organization with 9,000 workers in 19 cities around the country that engages in three main things. Workplace justice campaigns against high-profile restaurant companies that are engaged in wage theft, exploitation, discrimination, promotion of what we call the high road, which I do want to talk about in more depth, and a lot of research and policy work we've conducted. More than 5,000 surveys more of workers, more than 300 employer interviews. We've put out more than 15 reports, um, some of which I hope to tell you about today. On the high road, um, this prong of work, we're really promoting a different way of doing business. We've organized about 50 high road responsible employers around the country to lead 
a different model of profitability. Andy is one of them, and he'll tell you about how he manages to take the high road and be very successful. We've got a bunch of other employers like him around the country in all of the cities that we're in, as big as Tom Calicchio from Kraft, who's actually a really great employer. You may have seen him on Top Chef, all the way down to small mom-and-pop restaurants all over the country that work with us to you know, come to Congress, to come to City Hall, to promote a different way of doing business. We've worked with them not only to put out a report together with Cornell University that's on the table out there um, that talks about how you can actually take the high road and be profitable. That's, there's a qualitative piece that's out now and there's a quantitative 1,000 employer survey that's coming out later to really quantify how these things reduce turnover and increase productivity. Um, and then uh, we've worked with these employers also to promote them to consumers. So we've got a diner's guide, which I'll talk about in a little bit, promoting high road employers and indicating the practices of lots of other employers. Um, Andy's award winner in the guide. <laughs> um, and then we've worked with these employers also to develop a massive workforce development program. So we uh, opened our own restaurants in New York and uh, Detroit called Colors. They're worker-owned restaurants. They're, we're opening the third in New Orleans. And in them, we created a workforce development program that's now in all of our cities, where we've got a multi-tiered program. And we've, as I mentioned before, created our own career ladder, moving workers from low-wage jobs into these uh, livable-wage fine dining server and bartending positions. Um, we've got uh, community college pa partnerships and pathways as well, thanks to the Ford Foundation. In multiple cities, uh, workers are awarded college credit for that training program that we've created. Um, and we uh, are able to place, uh, we, we train about 1,000 workers a year, and we train about, we place about 75% in livable wage positions, meaning above 1350 and up. Um, so I can talk more about that, um, but, I, but I really encourage, um, you know, we are here talking about a workforce, I mean, I'm sorry, a low-wage work series, and this is a low-wage industry, do not get me wrong. But I think we can look at it from two angles. One, there are livable wage jobs in this incredibly low wage sector, and how can we get more and more people into them? How can we open up pathways? And at the same time, as Donna Edwards talked about, how can we lift the standards for everybody in the industry so we don't have to fit everybody into 20% of the jobs? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. You win the Marion Edelman Prize for, the, <laughs> for the most numbers in the shortest period of time that make you furious, <laughs> right? Uh, the, the mantle has passed. Uh, I want to come back uh, next time we get you in a couple minutes, a few minutes, to the question of wage theft. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think that you just had so many things to, to cover here, and it's so important. Uh, but Andy, uh, turning to you, uh, you, you of course have opened and managed a number of restaurants and, and you've been recognized, as Saru said, by her organization among others. And we know anyway about uh, the fact that you do the right thing by your employees. And uh, so talk a little bit about, uh, from your point of view, how you address job quality uh, in the context of managing a business that does make money. Uh, and and uh, so how that kind of ramifies out into what other employers could do. Thank you very much, Peter. Um, I want to thank the Aspen Institute also for holding this conference and, um, and Don Edwards, of course, for her leadership. Don and I go uh, a little bit uh, back uh, when we were working on uh, campaign finance reform. She's been an advocate on that. And if we had campaign finance reform, we wouldn't be talking about this issue right now. It'd be probably a whole different world. 
we'd have single payer, we'd have no wars, and we'd be all fine, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but but having uh, having not uh, succeeded uh, in, a, in a big way, um, we are we are here where we are today. I want to thank Rock uh, also. I, I think it's one of the organizations that that really lives up to its acronym because they 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 really do rock. They're they're it's a it's an amazing uh, organization that I think has helped us as a business to look at areas where we can do better. Because I always believe that you can always do better. And I see Michael Curtin there in the corner, and Michael Curtin, who runs DC Central Kitchen, who is one of the best employers in town. Frankly, they, they do uh, an amazing job. So thank you uh, so much, Michael. Um, so why do we do what we do? Uh, I, think, I think it's obvious. I, I'm, I'm always uh, surprised at the fact that there are not more restaurants and restaurateurs that come to this, to this table. Um, I think there is a sort of perception that if you are to do well by your, employ uh, by your employees, that you, for some reason, would do less. Uh, and there is a, and, and I think that that couldn't be further from the truth. In fact, the opposite is true. Uh, we have seen that if you have a workforce that is respected, that's well taken care of, that has benefits, that in fact you will get a better quality workforce. Uh, I, I think that's pretty obvious to most people uh, around uh, uh, this table, or certainly around any table. But I think we have an advantage here in that. Um, we need to go out to the consumers a little bit more. I think the consumers need to be involved in this process. Everybody here literally consumes food. So everyone eats out. Um, everyone has a say in this industry at some level or another, either through uh, being complicit or being active. Um, I think it's really important for us to recognize that if consumers are able to speak up about this issue more and more, that the restaurant employees will become less invisible. We all go out to eat, and I know everyone in this room probably goes out to eat uh, fairly regularly. Um, how many of you have been there late at night having this last uh, soda glass of wine, clicking your wine, and, and, and being with friends, leaving all your dirty dishes there, leaving, walking home, not recognizing that the person who's going to wash your dishes may not have a home to go to, uh, or the person that's actually cleaning up after you isn't going to be able to have a living wage job. Um, most of us don't think about that. We, we just think about the great experience. We think oftentimes much more about uh, our cage-free chicken and cage-free eggs than we do about cage-free employees, frankly. So I think we need to think in terms of how do we contribute to the problem? How do we, uh, through our complicity, through our uh, you know, sort of willingness to turn a blind eye, uh, are being part of the problem. I think that's really significant, and I'd like to see uh, sort of more of a, of a level playing field where government needs to get involved more to be able to create a situation where all restaurants have to abide by certain standards and certain rules so everybody can play the same game and not somebody is giving, you know, uh, subpar jobs and charging lower prices because of that, where somebody else who has higher uh, higher wages and benefits, having to charge higher prices to stay in business is being penalized because of, of, of that uh, disparity. Good. Uh, I want to come back to you on how you get up, how we get other people to do what you've done, Andy. But uh, let's, let's move on to talking in general or, or specifically, but uh, with all of our panelists on 
the sort of private action part of it. You, Andy, you talked about the role of reaching consumers, and then we'll get to public policy uh, in the last few minutes of the conversation. John, uh, as you look at all of this, what are some of the things that you think uh, employers and workers can do to, to attack these problems? Well, I, I think it's, there's an enormous uh, opportunity, there's a lot of scope for using high road kind of uh, policies within an individual restaurant or firm. Uh, and I think that for exactly the reasons that Andy was talking about, that you know, when you treat your workers well, you have lower turnover. Uh, when, they're, when you make sure that they have paid sick days, you make sure your staff is producing a good product and not getting other people sick, which helps productivity. Uh, when you train your workers uh, and you offer opportunities for advancement, you can retain them and keep folks and keep their productivity high. All of that's really very important. But I think that um, the other issue that, that is important in a, in a kind of from a policy point of view is we, we can't rely on uh, just having, you know, uh, you know, a million or two million uh, Andes out there to, you know, run all the businesses that we have. You know, he has a lot of special skills and what we need to do, I think, is create an environment where we both support people who decide to take the high road. Uh, and where we nudge people who don't want to take the high road onto it. Um, because we want to create a situation where we have a level playing field. Um, you know, back when we were complaining about child, uh, you know, where we were concerned about child uh, labor in the United States many, many, you know, decades ago, uh, there were low-wage employers that were just going to continue to hire children until it was not legal anymore because it was a profitable way for them to do business. It was inappropriate and it was terrible and you could make money not doing it, but some people could go ahead and do that. And I think we need to think in those kinds of terms. But uh, the other reason why I think we need to think, you know, there's an important role for individuals, but uh, we also need to keep in mind that, uh, that, that that's limited. I mean, the system we have right now is one that is based on uh, letting individual employers make the decisions about things. And it hasn't worked. It's exactly the cir circumstances that have left us with 40% of low-wage workers without health insurance, 70% without paid sick days. We need to push uh, people in the direction of doing the right thing. Sarah, so, let me come back to you in uh, and, and, uh, a couple different things. One, one is uh, I do want you to talk about wage theft. I, uh, I said, uh, Saru, while we were waiting uh, to come on in, that, that I had cited uh, in my book uh, a, a study in New York that, uh, 2005, that restaurant workers, 13% were not pay being paid the minimum wage, and that 60% were getting no overtime. And uh, she said, well, that was our study. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> so, um, Talk some about that, and, and of course we all know Kim Bobo's terrific book about wage theft, and those who don't should go right out and get it. Uh, but also, uh, I know you want to say something, and it's very important, and it's in this category about what you would say to workforce development organizations about what they ought to be doing. Sure. Um, so Anything else you want to say? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, well, on wage theft, uh, yes, we, we, did, we did put out a study called Behind the Kitchen Tour in 2005 when we had surveyed just 500 workers in New York and found that 60% uh, weren't paid overtime and 13% were getting their tips stolen. Tip theft happens in a lot of different ways and it's something everybody should know about because all of you leave tips on a regular basis. Um, one thing that's very common that we just want a big victory on is 
restaurants regularly, commonly deduct credit card processing fees uh, when workers' tips are left on credit cards. In Philadelphia, we just passed a law, first of its kind anywhere in the country, that we championed with the city council, um, making it illegal to uh, deduct credit card processing fees from, uh, from workers' tips. Um, and we want to see the same kind of thing happen around the country. But that's one way um, simple you know, management taking parts of the tips is a very, very, very common practice. Uh, Non-payment overtime is just the tip of the iceberg. Shaving of hours is a very common thing. People uh, are working many hours before they clock in, working many hours after they clock out. Um, so a wide range of issues, and in fact, um, We've got a major campaign right now against uh, the world's largest full-service restaurant company, the Darden Restaurant Group, which owns Olive Garden, Red Lobster, Longhorn Steakhouse, and the Capitol Grill Steakhouse um, for wage theft and racial discrimination in, in especially the Capitol Grill Steakhouse. Um, but to the point of you know what workers, employers, and consumers can do, um, we took that particular issue, wage theft. We looked at the minimum wage, which we've talked a lot about now. Uh, the tip minimum wage, we looked at paid sick days, which is a critical issue for our membership everywhere around the country. And of course, uh, for the workforce world, the issue of career mobility and advancement. And we said, how do the 150 most popular restaurants fare on those issues? On a career advancement, minimum wage, paid sick days, wage theft. And we created this diner's guide. Unfortunately, it's been so popular over the last couple of months, we ran out of copies to bring for you today. But it is online. We'll have a few copies out there. And uh, we can mail you hundreds of copies if you're interested. Um, but it has the rankings of the 150 most popular restaurants in America. It also has that of uh, 35 high-road employers like um, Busboys and Poets and Eatonville. And We're one of the most popular restaurants in America. Oh, okay. Just <laughs> <laughs> Don't put us in a separate okay. category. <laughs> You're the high-road most popular. <laughs> Unfortunately, most of the most popular restaurants are not, I mean, there's one. Uh, there's one that was in the high-road category. Um, so uh, this has been an incredible tool for all three categories, workers, employers, and consumers. It's the beginning of a multi-year consumer engagement campaign because at the back of the guide, we've created tip cards. At the end of your meal, we're, we're not asking anybody not to eat anywhere. We're instead asking every time you eat out to take one of these tip cards and hand it to the manager and say, I want to see you do better on paid sick days, or I want to see you do better on minimum wage, or I want to see you do better Oh, the tip cards are there. Thank you. <laughs> um, precisely for the reason Andy said, because uh, the industry jumped ahead of the curve when consumers started saying, are these strawberries organic? Is this uh, chicken free range? And so we know the industry will jump ahead of the curve if thousands of consumers are saying, uh, you know, do you provide opportunities for your people of color in the back to move to the front? Or do you provide paid sick days? Uh, I know I've, it's worked every time I've done that. At the end of my meal, by the way, I do it at the end of my meal. <laughs> um, Very wise. Yeah. Um, we need employers to join us in this journey. We've got uh, 50 now. It's growing very rapidly, though, um, because I didn't get to mention that the National Restaurant Association has been the primary and, unfortunately, only voice about on the restaurant industry on the Hill and in many state legislatures for many, many years. And they are the reason that the tip minimum wage has been at 213 for the last 21 years. In fact, in 1996, when the minimum wage rose and there was an opportunity for the tip minimum wage to rise with it, 
Herman Cain, who was lobbyist at that time for the NRA, ensured that um, that it stayed frozen basically forever until now. And that's why we need employers to stand up and say, uh, this is not just about big business. I'm a business owner, and I believe in an increased minimum wage. I believe in paid sick days. I believe in health care. I believe in um, advancement, career advancement for all workers and the ability to move up the ladder. Um, so I hope I answered That's your good. question. That's good. That's great. Terrific. Uh, Andy, couple questions. Uh, one is just extrapolating from yourself. Now, maybe that's just not possible. Uh, you are, maybe I hope not one of a kind, but in many ways you are, and that's great. But uh, how uh, how can, would you reach out to other employers, or how can uh, people generally do that? And then related to that, what's the role of unions in all of this? Well, I think. You know, restaurant associations and a lot of business associations like Chamber of Commerce really do not speak necessarily to small businesses, first of all. And second of all, they always, you know, think that the sky is falling. They always scream about things. I remember being involved in the smoke-free campaign here in mm -hmm. D.C. And I remember the um, outcry about how, you know, restaurants are going to close down, bars are going to stop serving drinks, and people are going to just move away to, you know, somewhere where there's where they can smoke and drink, and uh, that never happened. It was, it, was, it was never a problem here in D.C. In fact, we had, uh, my restaurants were smoke-free before the, uh, the, the band came into, into play, and we did great, and, uh, you know, and restaurants are thriving. There's restaurants opening every minute, you know, practically here in the city. So I don't think that's, that's ever, ever an issue. They've proven themselves to be sort of, um, you know, Chicken Littles in many ways, uh, these types of organizations. I know with the, with the sick leave, you know, I'm, I'm reading all kinds of information about how if you add sick leave to every one of your employees, suddenly uh, everyone is going to just call out sick that day and you're going to be just, you know, sitting doing nothing. Um, and uh, that, that couldn't be further from the truth. We have had a record now, a track record of what we've done. Uh, during the last year, for, for, for instance, uh, of 2011, uh, our, our sick leave amounted to 0.35% of our entire payroll, and the actual sick leave that was taken, 0.35%, a very minuscule amount, um, out of our entire revenue ended up to be under 0.1% was used up for sick leave. And that's offset in many ways, really, by not having to hire new people, not having to retrain people, not having to have people go out, uh, you know, sick because somebody else was sick in the, in the house that made other people sick, uh, and so on. When I had a very small business and I didn't have sick leave back then for my employees, the whole idea was if somebody called out sick, it was like a family, right? Somebody calls out sick, you work harder, you work longer, you just make up for it. So there's really no loss in revenue per se, no loss in any kind of wages um, from the perspective of the owner. Uh, so it was always about the employee. Um, for the employee to not call out sick, especially like Sarah so vividly explained, people sneezing <laughs> in your food, uh, it, would be, it would be awful. It would be a really pretty disgusting thing. Um, I, in, in my places, I have walked in the back and seen somebody sniffling and told them to stop. Uh, I think it's, it just, it, it's, you know, people don't have this mindset. We've had to actually convince our employees to understand our sick leave policy because they just can't believe that it's true. You know, we've, we've dumbed down the system so much that the fact that somebody's able to get paid while they're out, 
where they get paid a living wage even though they're a temp employee when they're out is considered shocking to, to many employees. And I, I guess to our advantage, we, we sort of have the high road on this one, but it's, it's, it's a shame that we really have to be making it sound like such a incredible, you know, um, benefit to have that. It should be a non-issue. It should be an issue that every employee should feel. I've been sick for the last three days. I just got better today. And I was out for two days. For me, if I wasn't getting paid while being out, I'll think twice about leaving. I'll, I'll just, you know, take a few pills and, and just muck through. Um, and, and made other people a lot sicker. And I, I, I just don't think it's, especially in the food industry, the idea that people are sick making your food, preparing your food, or serving your food, you guys got to be really worried. I mean, really. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a, for me, it has proven itself to be actually valuable in attracting, retaining better employees, and has not really affected the bottom line. In fact, I would say uh, that it has improved the bottom line because the amount of money we spend on sick leave has been offset greatly by training, retaining, keeping the best employees there are. Terrific. Uh, I want to turn to public policy. Uh, and uh, well, But let's include in that, we didn't talk about unions. And, and so maybe included in, in what you're going to say, John, would be that. Well, I, I, for me, I think there's three uh, crucial things we need to do in terms of public policy. The first is I think we need to uh, implement some serious labor standards that affect every worker, not just uh, workers in the middle and the top. Uh, something like paid sick days requirement, six days per year is a proposal that, that, I, that is around. Um, a second uh, area of public policy uh, is I think we need to build on the existing social insurance system that we have. You know, everybody knows and loves Social Security and Medicare. They're enormously popular. They're efficient. Uh, uh, but we can do more than, than that. We can expand on unemployment insurance, for example. Uh, we can also uh, uh, cover things like have paid family leave through social insurance. Um, and then a third thing uh, that I think is real important in terms of a uh, public policy agenda, and it's not one that, that unfortunately we think about a whole lot, and that is the, uh, to create an environment, a public policy environment and a legal environment which makes it much easier for low-wage workers to form unions. Um, and I think when we take those three things, we want to be smart about how we do it. So. Uh, I think uh, when, you know, when costs to employers are low or even possibly uh, positive in the case of something like paid sick days, I think we want to use something like an employer mandate. We want to say it, a job is the following things and six paid days of sick, sick, uh, six paid sick days per year. I mean, that's a definition of a job, uh, includes that. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's a, a way to implement uh, employer mandates that's sensible when the costs are low. Uh, smart in other contexts means, I think, using social insurance. So uh, if we're going to do something like paid family leave, which is inexpensive when it's spread out over a very large part of the population, but when it falls on an individual, particularly an individual small employer, and it might make, mean paying someone's uh, time away from work for six months, I mean, we want to do that in a social mm -hmm. level. Um, but I think in terms of, uh, I think it's also important to think of, of creating an environment for unions as part of a smart solution. And, uh, you know, as, as a, somebody who's looked at low-wage wor workers for a long time, uh, the thing that strikes me most about a union is it is this amazing organization. You think about it. It's, it's embedded in the workplace. 
Uh, it's financially self-sustaining. It's democratically controlled. And it's an advocate on the ground every single day for the people that we're concerned about. So I think if we can create an environment where we foster that a lot more, uh, then I think you know, the on-the-ground private union uh, and the support in terms of, of uh, paid sick day, uh, excuse me, in terms of uh, labor standards and in terms of social insurance, I think that's the kind of thing that's going to do what Sarah was saying, bring the bottom up, mm -hmm. uh, as well as create the opportunities for people to move up. I, and, and I think the, there's a huge role for public policy. If I might just add uh, uh, on the union thing, you said it, but just to uh, underscore the legislative context of enacting the Employee Free Cho right. Choice Act. Right. Uh, and, and on the labor standards, the enforcement side right. of it, uh, enough money in the Labor Department and, and in the states around the country to enforce the, the, the standards. And I would just underscore on uh, what you call the social insurance side uh, in, in relation to uh, the, the fact that uh, it's the unfortunate fact that we can do uh, as much as we can with the minimum wage and, and uh, far more with, with uh, unions uh, to the extent, uh, maximum extent possible, we're going to have a lot of low-wage work in this country for a very long, <coughs> long time. And uh, we need a conversation that is about how to get all the components of a living income to people. And that says to me that we just have to look at this differently. That we have to be looking at income supplementation, uh, the earned income tax credit, uh, keeping uh, the amount for three kids that we have temporarily in the Recovery Act, doing much more with the EITC for individuals, which is $460 a year right now. And, and one of the pieces, a lot of the people that, you're, that we're talking about today are single individuals. And if you look at the composition of poverty in this country, a group that we never talk about. I mean, you know, my wife's done a wonderful job about children. The elderly uh, speak for themselves very effectively. Single individuals, general assistance went away years ago at the state level. Very little left. And so we need to focus on that uh, element of poverty. So income supplementation uh, directly uh, as, as uh, essentially an add-on to the wage, uh, not to supplant it. Uh, and also all of the things that we provide but insufficiently that have a monetary value, health coverage, child care, help with housing, post-secondary education, all of those. So I just want to add that to your list. Um, Saru, I'd like to turn to you and ask the same question, but specifically from your vantage point. You, you've done organizing of workers in a way that is innovative in a way that's different. And, and certainly, you'd love to see uh, uh, all the, uh, the hotel and restaurant workers be stronger and all of that. But talk some about uh, the, your vision of organizing and, and the, the kind of interaction between the public policy and the private action. Sure. Um, I mean, our organizing has been focused on um, uh, their, you know, the successful campaigns we've had have been against high-profile fine dining restaurant companies that really do, in many cities, set the standards for the industry. Um, and so we've, we've really kind of done these strategic campaigns to raise standards, um, not only address wage theft, we've won $5 million in stolen tips and wages over the years, but also actually raise wages, raise standards, win paid sick days um, for thousands of workers in multiple high-profile companies. And, I can talk more offline with anybody who's interested in the model we've created to do this. It's a non-union model. Um, 
definitely. On the policy side, I, I definitely think there's an interaction with that, especially, um, especially on the workforce side. So we've talked a lot about wages, which is a really important act to raise that subminimum wage. We've talked about paid sick days at the federal level, the Healthy Families Act. At the local level, we're leading and co-leading paid sick days initiatives in states around the country. Um, to address health care issues, we've created our own national health care cooperative um, where we've worked with FQHDs, federally qualified health clinics, to create a cooperative fund that workers pay into $20 a month and get unlimited pre preventative care um, around the country. So that's been really exciting. But in terms of workforce, I think there's a lot that we could do policy-wise to address career mobility in this industry and to really shift focus towards this industry a little bit more. Um, one is to think about public dollars and the focus that there's been for a very long time on high tech and healthcare and um, certain sectors that are kind of seen as the gold standard for workforce development. Um, I, we really hope that in the years to come we can work with other folks to get the federal government and state governments to look at these sectors that actually do have tremendous potential for workers to move up the ladder to livable wage positions. And I'll just give you one example. We just lost um, a very dear friend and colleague, Bruce Herman, um, who was the Deputy Commissioner for Labor of New York State, and he was in charge of workforce development in New York State. And under his tenure, he created a program um, in which we got a significant, we got significant funding to uh, train formerly incarcerated folks to come into our industry and not just get into those entry-level positions, but move up the ladder to livable wage positions. We did manage to get formerly incarcerated folks into positions as servers and bartenders and fine dining restaurants. It doesn't, it's not, doesn't require a lot of a formal skill, a formal education. Although we do have this community college partnership where we're able to get people college credit as well. But we have, I mean, and that's the key, that these policies, workforce development policies need to focus on, on low-wage sectors like ours where there is potential for mobility, but encourage not just entry-level you know, positions or training into every level, entry-level positions, but really push the envelope towards mobility, towards moving people to the livable wage positions and thinking about simultaneous policies that, are, that work together to get people into those livable wage positions and at the same time uh, really lift the entire floor. Because I I'm going to repeat myself, but we just can't ignore this industry on workforce, on wages, we, we just can't. It's too large, it's too present in, in our everyday lives. Uh, Andy, with your permission, I'm going to turn to the audience Absolutely. and open the floor for questions. Uh, I'm, I'm From a policy perspective, though, I just wanted to yes, just, say, just say one thing. I think, I think one, one thing in the right direction is probably an, an enactment of a single-payer mm. type of uh, health care plan I think would, would definitely help uh, employers and employees to, to be on the right track with this issue. And having a level playing field, I think, is very significant. It's not enough to just depend on individual restaurants to be able to do the right thing. Yeah, I think yeah. it needs to be uh, in policy to be able to move this forward. Thank you for adding that. And uh, in the back there, yes, I saw your hand first. No, behind you. Uh, yeah. um, I, I'm a um, graduate student forever, consultant, and more importantly, a father of a chef <laughs> who's at a fine dining. So I've gotten to know this a lot for the last five years as he's now moved back into the house. <laughs> so I'm well aware of the low wages. But one of the things I've learned a lot is I picked up clients yeah. and looked at their, their operating plans. The margins are so thin for so many. And granted, I get a lot, of, a lot of those restaurants when they're in trouble and they're trying to get the cost of goods sold down and trying to manage this. What public policy issues are you going to do to sort of deal with the fat reality that most are operating on maybe a nickel? Two and a half cents, 
So okay. that's the, the economic side of this. Thank this you for the question. Any who wants yeah, to respond? Yeah, I can respond. Oh. <laughs> Is that okay? Yeah, yeah sure. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I there are many small businesses that that do uh, operate on a nickel, and we actually provide um, really concentrated technical assistance to help people. Uh, and this guide um, that we created with Cornell. Uh, School of Hospitality Management um, it really does indicate to people how they can um, not cut labor costs, you know, really think about other costs that they can cut, other efficiencies that they can work with to, to stay in business, to stay successful. But I do want to say, I'm sorry, but that's just not true of the multinational restaurant corporations that run the National Restaurant Association, like Darden. With this Dar the CEO of Darden makes eight and a half, okay, million dollars a year and has $22 million in assets in the company, and the, the company pays as little as $2.13 a year. And unfortunately, those are the big voices setting policy for our industry at the National Restaurant Association. So you've got these huge chain restaurants breaking in millions of dollars, and then you've got lots of small restaurants around the country that are struggling and not helped by the policies that the NRA is setting. And so we are here to actually, that we've created a round table of these high road employers to share with each other. You know, we do regular convenings of employers so they can share with each other best practices, how they can do better. A lot of it, and, and I know Andy can speak, people get into this industry a lot of times without having any experience whatsoever in business. You know, they don't know how to run a business. And so uh, a, a lot of it is helping them understand even basic things like a business plan or forecasting or uh, cash flows, um, and, and that helps people to do better. Okay. Can, can I jump quick, in on that? I, I think I, there's an, a, a, small businesses create the most jobs and they also lose the most jobs. I mean, there, it, there's a lot of reasons why small businesses uh, go under, and my concern would be if your business model's success depends on you treating your workers worse than other folks treat their workers. I think that that's exactly the kind of business we don't want to be encouraging. And I think we want to create a floor uh, that all employers have to, have to, uh, to, to, to meet and, and then work from there. Uh, and I think that's, uh, you know, that's the direction we ought to be putting, pushing public policy in. And uh, if there are structural reasons why large employers are, for example, doing better than small employers, uh, then let's address those and not take them out on low-wage workers uh, and expect them. Yeah. Okay, uh, right in front of you, the, your hand was up, sir. Yeah, I, I guess I wanted to hear more from uh, Andy. Uh, I think he, he, uh, the, the issue is that bringing other uh, employers to the table. I think, you know, I've got a lot of experience for over years with workforce development uh, providers, but I think you know, oftentimes the missing part, people don't, don't see that there are two customers, the, the worker as well as the employer in the workforce training. So. W Share with us, if you can, the, the template that you use that, that makes you successful a little more. Um, I think I, I touched on it a little bit earlier, is I think the idea of treating your employees well, you get the best and the brightest, and they stay the longest. So that's, that's a huge plus for, for the restaurant business, because the restaurant business, although it's, a, it's, it's not necessarily always a high skill job that you're bringing, there's a lot of information that a person needs to know in order to serve you well. Um, so it's important for you to have people that have been there for a while and know what they're doing. That's really significant. I think the other part is a lot of people that get into this business, as, as so many people mentioned, don't necessarily have a business background, don't necessarily have an MBA or understand business really well. And they tend to sort of follow what is considered conventional wisdom. 
we're supposed to pay people the lowest wages. We're supposed to do that. And we set all of the business plan accordingly. If you start out with the idea that your employees are going to be well taken care of, you set your business plan according to that. It's just a, it, I think it's a new mindset that we have to start seeing in how the restaurants operate and what are the margins supposed to be like and what are the prices people are supposed to pay. I still get people coming in and, you know, we charge $10.95 for our burgers. They're very good burgers, but they're grass-fed, organic burgers. They're served by people that are getting paid uh, decent wages and have insurance and have uh, paid sick leave and all of that. I can't charge half that price for a burger as the guy maybe next door um, who's getting maybe subpar meat, is, is, uh, is not giving any, any, any uh, good treatment to his staff, not giving them any uh, livable wages or any benefits. So it's, part of it is an educational process that needs to you know, raise everybody's standard higher. I think we've just dumbed down the business so much because so many people that work in that business have been traditionally immigrants, people that may not be noticed, uh, people that may be uh, sort of just kind of fell into the business because they had no other options. But the business is changing tremendously, as, uh, as Saru had, uh, had mentioned, uh, with the Food Network and all the mm -hmm. chefs and everything that's going on. People are starting to recognize this is a serious business with a serious career path. You can do really, well, you know, really, really well. I have people that work in my business that make six figures. So it's, 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 not, it's no longer this small little operation that, that we've uh, been used to and have sort of accepted because that's just the way it is. That dishwasher isn't going to be there for a long time. He's going to move on to become a CEO somewhere eventually down the road. That's, that, that's not necessarily uh, the way that we should look at it. So I think we need to change the standards by which we work with. This has been terrific. Uh, it strikes me that in the current policy environment, policy is going to follow, not lead. And what you have are some really powerful ingredients um, that begin with um, consumer awareness, and you are likening it to the organic food movement. But the question I have is, um, what are the other steps that need to be taken to have the kind of power that um, the organic food movement has had? So that's on the consumer side of it, and the other is on the employer side. It seems that um, the employers have ceded the authority to the National Restaurant Association, from what I'm hearing, and there's an alternative view in order to change, and, and they're um, purveyors of a conventional wisdom that is neither conventional, if you look at real practice, or wisdom. But um, how will the uh, restaurant tours themselves um, gain greater voice as an alternative to that. And then the final thing is that we know generally that employers invest about $125 billion in talent development in general. Um, I don't know what percentage of that uh, is attributed to low-skill workers or to the restaurant uh, industry. But when we think about skill development, what we hear from Andy is that there's a lot of skill development that's going on in the enterprises themselves, and how can that be more apparent, um, uh, higher quality, and link better with the systems? So 
those are several questions. Uh, yes, that is several questions. <laughs> so uh, yeah. do your best, because okay. I'd like to try to get one or two more questions. I'll talk really quickly. Um, this Diner's Guide is actually the beginning of a multi-year consumer engagement campaign that we're doing together with Slow Food USA and a bunch of other uh, sustainable and local food organizations all around the country. The uh, campaign is a transmedia campaign. I'm coming out with a book. 2013, 2013, <laughs> on the restaurant industry, and and a lot of it, you know, how, how, you know, Upton Sinclair said about the jungle that he meant to reach America's heart, and he reached America's stomach, and um, that that is kind of I think what needs to happen through this book, and then Danny Glover's uh, making a movie about us, uh, about rock and the restaurant industry, and so we're planning a multi-year transmedia campaign to reach America's hearts, minds, and stomachs. <laughs> Um, to get them to understand what's really going on behind the kitchen door, which is the title of my book, um, to understand the stories of restaurant workers, how they're struggling on 213. Most Americans don't know 213. They don't know it's mostly women. They don't know there's no paid sick days. They don't know people are working while sick um, in, in serving their food. And, and so knowing people, like reading their stories, empathizing, being able to understand that and understand how it impacts their health as consumers the same way organic strawberries and grass-fed chicken affects their health is the key way to do it. So um, that's this multi-year uh, campaign. In terms of employers and restaurant voice, so we've got 50. It's growing. It's closer to 60 now, high-road employers around the country. And it's true that for the most part, you know, the NRA still is a major voice. However, I will say that um, our employers are in high demand. Like, you know, especially on the Hill uh, and, you know, policymakers around the country are constantly asking to speak to our high road employers. And, you know, so we're calling Andy almost every day, like, can you come speak at this? Can you come do this? Because people are eager to hear something different. They've heard from the NRA for so long saying the same thing over and over again. And so there, there is an openness and eagerness to hear an alternative voice from employers. Um, it will take us having more employers, and that's, you know, we've now got full-time staff in every affiliate around the country working exclusively on outreach to high-road employers because it's such a big piece of our work. And those employers are working with us on our multi-tiered, you know, advanced service curriculum to certify it so that it, you know, Tom Colicchio's name is on it and other big chefs' names are on it so that increasingly, as Andy said, this is seen as a profession and a professional career and the curriculum that we've got moving people from um, whether it be fast food into fine dining or back of the house into front of the house is seen as a true formalized career path as opposed to just, oh, can you get your friend, you look good, can you get your friend, somebody who looks like you to be the server next to you and the busser never gets the opportunity to move up to that, uh, to that great waitstaff position. I think one last question in the back there. Well, we have kind of a statement and a question. Uh, okay, well, the statement's going to be fast, right? Well, really fast. Uh, first of all, I want to thank you because I, I just moved from New York City where I was doing job development there with people who were uh, formerly incarcerated folks, and I was running into a lot of uh, problems getting them hired. And uh, some of my coworkers worked uh, for Colors, and I, rep I, I actually uh, sent over some guys, and they got jobs. They're still there. Great. So. Thanks. Uh, secondly, um, I noticed when I was job developing and I was walking into restaurants, um, and just having family in the restaurant industry in New York as well, there's a lot of immigrants in the kitchen that aren't actually uh, illegal. I mean, actually legal to be working here, and that that's it's all over New York City. Um, what's going on with that? I mean, how how, how is that in, <laughs> it, you know how's that getting in the way of raising wages? And, yes, that question. 
Yeah, um, and I'll answer it first. Then uh, we, we estimate. We call them undocumented, not yes, illegal. Yes, thank, thank you, thank you. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> um, we estimate that in cities like New York and L.A., Chicago, D.C almost 40% of the industry is actually undocumented. And that's not just back of the house Latino Chinese workers. There are managers from Poland in New York who are undocumented and people just don't know. You know, they're, they're undocumented workers throughout the industry in every position from every country on earth, literally. Um, and the industry would not function without them and the National Restaurant Association has known that and has said it at various points. But here's another situation where they've parted ways with the small business. When they recently came out in favor of E-Verified, it was largely to drive a wedge between big business that could maybe withstand that and small business that absolutely could not withstand E-Verify removing large percentages of their workforce. Um, so I think the industry as a whole understands that it's there. I do want to say people, the industry sometimes tries to use that as an excuse to not promote workers from within. So we conducted a match pairs audit testing study that we published a report in 2009 where we sent 200 pairs of white and people of dollar, color uh, applicants into fine dining restaurants to apply as wait staff with the people of color having uh, better resumes. And we also tested, that was race, and we also tested for accent because a huge part of, oh, they don't know the language, they're undocumented, that's why they could never move to the front. Well, we also <laughs> had the white workers with European accents and the workers of color with, you know, other accents. And um, not only did white workers in general have twice the chance of a worker of color of getting one of these livable wage jobs with a lesser resume, but the white workers with a very strong, sometimes unintelligible European accent had a greater advantage in getting a job than even a white worker without an accent. The workers of color, of course, had a tremendous disadvantage um, with even a slight accent. So accent is not, you know, uh, language ability and status are not the actual reasons that workers are not able to advance to these, these really livable wage positions in the industry. It's race. It's, it's just race. Um, and so it's used as an excuse, and at the same time, the industry largely knows that we just could never do without these workers, and we need immigration reform to really be able to keep all of these workers that we desperately need to sustain this industry. Well. We could go on for an hour about know, all that. Sorry. <laughs> Let's say thank you to this terrific panel. Sorry, you want to say something?